The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Uh, morning everybody, my name's Peter Mason. Um, on behalf of the RSA, we'd like to welcome you all here this morning. Uh, sorry about the weather, we couldn't get down to the um, memorial down there for Bomber Command, but it's not too nice to go out there, so best we stay put in here. But if you want to drive past here on the way home, just go down the road around past Gunner Drive, and it's out on the right, you'll see the memorial there. And um, that was actually built from a replica um, for a crew that lost their lives in uh, Luxembourg, a little place called Weisenbach. And I went over for the unveiling for that, I took a photo of it, and um, next thing the council came up said, oh, we'll build that memorial in honour of uh, Phelan Hazard, who was a, uh, from Tietatu, and I think the only person from Tietatu that lost his life in the Second World War. So uh, in those days you couldn't imagine it had been a little country town, could you? It was just a few farms and nothing else, but um, officially he was the only person that lost his life from Tietatu in the war. Anyway, so it's good to be here. I've been involved with the Air Force for 55 years. When I started off, I suppose I could say, um, up in Fiji. We actually flew up to Fiji in the Sunderland flying boat. My father worked at the airport at Nandi and we did a two-year posting up there at Nandi. Dad was a cook up there and I was three years old so I don't remember too much about going up there at all. But I do remember Santa arriving when I was at Nandi and I ran off into the hills and I had a hard job catching me and seeing this bloke in the big red suit with his beard on it was just too much for me. And they caught up with me and brought me back. But anyway, um, when we came back I was five years old and I just started to remember things. And what really, really stuck in my mind 
when we came back to land in the Waitemata Harbour, I was only five years old, but it's one thing that stuck in my memory. It was a lovely, beautiful, sunny day. And I could see why they called it the sparkling waters of the Waitemata Harbour. It was just absolutely fantastic. And that stuck with me all my life, that memory of coming into Auckland and the Waitemata Harbour. It was just fantastic. Anyway, <coughs> I wanted to, well, I wasn't fussed about joining the Air Force, so I thought, oh, well, I'm getting a bit bored working in the railway, so I was walking home from work down Flanshaw Street, where the old recruiting place was. You guys didn't know that, but I wasn't there when I actually joined the Air Force. But I went into the recruiting office, I went upstairs there, and all these blokes are standing around the office. They looked at me, I looked at them. I asked about joining the bloody Air Force and they weren't too interested I said, oh well, I'll go home. Anyway, I'm halfway down the road and this guy comes running after me. Oh, oh, he says, come back, he says, and uh, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to join the Air Force. Oh, I'll come back, he says, I'll give you some papers and, um, you know, he says, then you can take it from there. I said, oh, okay. So I went up to the recruiting office and I wanted to be a signaller. But I wasn't brainy enough. I only did two years at college. But he said, oh, we'll make you uh, safety and service worker if you like. I didn't have a clue what that was. But, oh, yeah, okay. So I signed up in the Air Force in October 61. And in those days, it was a two-day trip down to Christchurch. The old overnight rattler to Wellington. All day watching movies in Wellington. And then getting the ferry over to um, Christchurch or Littleton. And so did a recruit course, came back to Auckland and did my trade course, got posted to Harkia. It was a great place in. There were lots of aeroplanes, vampires, Canberra's, Harvards, Dakotas, Osters, you name it, Devons, they were all there. It was a great place. There was a great Air Force there. Anyway, I stayed there for uh, two and a half, three years. I went up back to Hobsonville, I did my senior course, got posted back to Ahakia, and then I was posted to Singapore, and that was nine months working up there on Canberra with 14 Squadron, and that was a great nine months, it was fantastic. We got posted back to um, Ahakia, stayed on the squadron for another two or three years. The first time the Air Force went to Tyndall, we were actually on our way to um, Singapore, and as you blokes should know, Bob Gilbert was the captain of the DC-6, and he wanted to be the first New Zealand Air Force aircraft to land at Tyndall. So we landed at Tyndall, did a touch and go, and carried on, and then we heard later on he got granted for six months because he didn't have authorisation to do a landing at Tyndall. Does that sound about right? <laughs> but anyway, Bob was a nice bloke, and um, we carried on, and got to Singapore as usual and carried on and came back I think in a herc. From there I got posted to, I'm oh not sorry, I wanted to go loanmaster. And um, no, nah, got to have school C. This was the engineering officer. I said, oh, okay. So I stayed at a Harkey and 10 years later I was up at three squadron. I've been in the Air Force 10 years at that stage and stayed at um, 3 Squadron and then um, I saw something in the Air Force about aircrew and I'm a great believer in fate 
So I went over to Fenua I was going past the education office, and a lot of you guys remember old Jock Kenny, he was an education officer. Yeah, I said, come in and do these checks, he said, the idiot tests. Oh, okay. So I did that, and off I went back to work. Next thing I'm told, I'm on a aircrew course. <laughs> so, doesn't say much for school certificate, does it? But I must have done all right in the test, and then I was on my way down to Wigram, did my um, basic aircrew training course, all that sort of thing, came back to squadron, and ended up being a helicopter crewman. I was a helicopter crewman for uh, four years at that time. We did a lot of interesting things. And um, one thing that upsets me was when the day um, the Iroquois flew into the hills down there at Wainui Yamata in bad weather. Well, when I was flying, we didn't worry about that. We stopped. If we didn't like the weather, we stopped. In one case, we were looking for a woman, a lot of older guys know this girl went missing, Mona Blades. And she's out the back of, um, they said, oh, the last time we saw this lady, she was in the car and they were going down this road in the middle of nowhere. So we had to go down to Taupo, pick up this heat sensing gear and look for a hot spot, see if they could find a body anyway. This was late afternoon, we came back to the airfield and uh, up the top of Ringatuki Road there. And so the boss said, oh, we better head back. So we started to go back to Taupo, we got lower and lower and lower. And I said to the pilot, hey, I can't see the next pylon. Or should he say, we better land. So we found the paddock, we landed the aeroplane. We had the two IC of police on board with us, and we had the a ground crew guy who had this heat sensing stuff. And we didn't know where we were. <laughs> we were in the middle of nowhere. Cloud, I mean, it was cloud, it was low cloud. You couldn't see probably more than two or three paddocks away. And so Chris Peters says, You go over that pylon, he says, and get the number. So that's how they found us. Ring up base ops on the radio. Hey, we're stuck in this paddock. The weather's no good. And could you uh, get somebody to come back here? So they came back and picked us up. Or no, they didn't pick us up. Sorry, they came back. They found us. And um, we said, oh, God, we can't leave the bloody aeroplane here. So these bloody cows around, they'll bloody lick all the paint off and chew up the aerials and all the rest of it. So we hovered taxi down the road and we put the aeroplane to bed <coughs> and uh, we got back to Taupo, it was dark, it was wet and cold and uh, somebody said, oh god we've got all that heat sensing device on the aeroplane and, and we need to, um, we, we need to, to get it secure. He said, Pete, uh, can you go up with the policeman and um, lock the plane up or get the stuff, you know. See if everything's right. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So we, we couldn't find the aeroplane. It was so bloody dark. <laughs> it was pitch black. We couldn't find it. Drove up and down the road. No idea where it was. So we come up in the morning. There it was, sitting in a little paddock, all by itself, safe and sound. So we were quite relieved to find our helicopter. Anyway, the moral of the story was we weren't frightened to land if the weather was bad. 
That's why I'm still here today. Because we use common sense. You had to. If you didn't, it could be fatal. And you say, I was pretty upset when that Iroquois went in. Anyway, when I did my time there on Andover, they asked us if I'd, oh sorry, helicopter, I went on the Andover, and what a great aeroplane that was, flying around the islands, doing the style work, it was absolutely fantastic. A great aeroplane to fly in, and um, the places we went to around overseas, it was just absolutely great. And uh, I flew on Andover for four years, and I got out of the Air Force, stayed in the Air Force for about nine years, I was actually a bandsman, so for nine years there and I came back to the Air Force 20 years ago and uh, officially the freight coordinator and I'm still here on the payroll, still alive and still enjoying life so uh, that's my life in the RNZAF so uh, that's all from me, thanks very much. time now to uh, ask Peter Lewis to come up and he wants to give a few words uh, about the Aviation Historical Society of New Zealand. Thank you Dave. I don't, I don't have any fancy slides to show unfortunately. Um, I've been stuck in Wellington um, for a while. Um, but as you're probably aware the Aviation Historical Society of New Zealand has been around since 1958 and I have been a member of the Society since 1962, so that's something over 55 years. It was very small then. Um, the Society has had its ups and downs over the years, and this year I have been almost unanimously elected onto the board of the Society, and with the role of trying to find a way that the society can be more relevant in the future. I've had discussions with Dave and a few other people um, and we're formulating a plan for the future. Um, as you're probably aware we've largely done printed publications up to now and we intend to continue with some printed publications but we're also looking at obviously developing much more of an online presence. So, um, basically one thing we obviously need to do is to spend money and to order to spend money we need to get money. So, we're also asking for more members. I see there's some members or previous members like Peter Wheeler sitting in the corner around. Um, we would like to see as many as possible of you either join or rejoin. I do have some membership forms here with me today. So if you're interested, come and see me over lunchtime. Um, that's a mock-up of the next magazine that's coming out called Aero Historian. Rather strangely, if you've been watching the forum recently, you'll notice coverage of DC-3s and C-47s on it, um, which is purely a coincidence to what I've been doing recently. Um, so it is good value just for the four magazines a year. But as I say, we are trying to, to make the society more relevant so if you do have any ideas of what the society can do um, that would attract and retain interested people um, in the aviation history sphere, I would certainly like to hear them. So hopefully we can get some of you guys to enrol today. Um, that would make me very happy. And if you do have any other ideas about how the society can develop, by all means come and see me at lunchtime. Thank you. 
Hi folks, my name's Warwick Jones. Um, I run the Hamilton branch of the Rural Area Nautical Society. We're having the same problem as all these other groups, like the historian guys. Um, our crews are all getting older and they're gradually uh, you know, fading off the scene. And we're finding it yeah, pretty hard to get young people involved. Um, we've currently still got six branches in New Zealand, although I understand the Auckland branch of our society has sort of been in recess the last couple of years. But we're still going strong in Hamilton. Tauranga, we've got up and running in the last two years. Palmerston North, Wellington, Blenheim and Christchurch. So the Aeronautical Society, of course, is the oldest aviation society in the world. Formed in 1866 when they only had hot air balloons. We're a group of six people. Different trades got together and said we're going to form an aeronautical society and look into anything that will enhance aviation. So... Um, we're allowed to cover anything from model aeroplanes up to rockets, so most of us, um, yeah, every month, you know, we have to organise a speaker and we try and mix it up a bit and get someone from a different group of the aviation fraternity, so yeah, we try and keep it interesting and Dave's been to a few and I, I try and keep in touch with him and keep up with what's going on around the country all the time. Um, you can just go onto our main website and then that'll tell you what all the other branches, when they have their meetings and, and what they're having going on each month. And um, yeah, I try and flick out quite a bit of stuff too with photos <laughs> um, going around the place because as you know, social media now. But yeah, coming back to getting the young people interested, I'm not sure how we're going to do it. We've got one or two things up our sleeve too. But we've tried one or two avenues, but it um, just doesn't seem to work the same as it did in the old days, where you had apprentices and people, you know, like from manufacturing places like we have at Hamilton, like PAC and Aeromotive and that. I send them notices every month, but unfortunately we don't really get a response. Um, yeah, times are changing, so whether we just have to do more stuff online, make things more interesting, have more sort of hands-on things. Um, some of the other branches are trying different things now. Um, trying to get involved with the school science groups. I think Wellington branch and Blenheim branch have done that a couple of times. Yeah, but it's... The other thing is, um, we were over at Classic Flyers the other weekend and had a great time over there eh, with the Gene Batten lecture and then the local guy, um, yeah, Bill James, wasn't it? With the engines, yeah, donated 13 beautifully engineered um, model aircraft engines, all working models with wooden props on. He's donated them to Classic Flyers. They're going to go into the museum there, so um, that's really something pretty good. But um, they've certainly got a good setup up over there, and the way they run everything. Unfortunately, we haven't got anything like that in Hamilton. Um, my vision for the future and going into next year is to try and lead something that possibly we'll be able to have an aviation heritage centre somewhere around Hamilton. Um, we've just had a local company that's actually brought the um, property at Tikofi, where Max Clear used to do the Bantam microlights and all that. Of course, the production of that has gone down to um, Mandeville with Mr Smith. They're carrying on with that, but Tikofi is sort of dried up a bit and it's only used for storage of uh, people's aircraft but um, we've got a few other groups looking at that now and trying to see what they reckon they're going to do. They say they're going to develop it and they realise it's an asset to the community so I'm hoping that maybe we can um, look at doing something there. Um, 
Yeah, and if we can get a f couple of aircraft there and um, get a few things, you know, we've got a few exhibits and we've got a few things of our own in Hamilton locked away. I've got a hang of a lot of um, photographs and lithographs and stuff like that. And a lot of it, you know, it's, it's just never seen. So this stuff needs to be put out. But yeah, we'll see what we can do. Maybe apply for a few more grants and um, see if someone will come to the party. Okay, so yeah, like the other gentleman said, if you are interested in anything to do with aviation, see where your local aeronautical branches and um, get along to their meetings and try and support them too. Um, you'll be made more than welcome because we've all got one thing in common and that's a passion for aviation, okay? Thank you. Uh, Cliff Hawley is going to give us a talk on the RNZAF's uh, light anti-aircraft squadrons, which uh, he was a member of back in uh, the 1950s. Uh, they're, they're kind of a almost uh, forgotten part of RNZAF history and um, followers of the forum may have seen Cliff and a few others who had um, served in the squadrons have been talking about it on the forum. Uh, it's really good to have you here, Cliff. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Dave. I um, brought along a couple of notes. I'm having to go back a hell of a long way because it's 62 years ago, 1954. So um, I'll try and give you a little bit of what happened in those days. The 19... Um, at some stage, the government decided that all fit, young, able, healthy, or um, young fellows would go and have to do military service. Compulsory, that was. Unless you were unfit, then you didn't go in. But it, by and large, it, it, it called on most of us. So we had to go through the, the, um, the medical, and we checked in, and um, we were in. Now, there was some... 66,000 boys went through CMTs and uh, I don't know if any of you guys had anything to do with it you probably came long after me but um, we in, in those days uh, we were given a choice it was either Navy at 17 Army at 18 and for some reason right, the Air Force took us in at 19 or 20 well um, go back a bit um, in what happened. My, my father um, was an electrician by trade <coughs> and um, he we, we shifted into Teatidu. We shifted right to here and where you fellas got your feet, where this building is stands is where we lived. And so Teatidu in those days was a fairly exciting sort of a place because there were searchlights around. I'm, I'm getting off the subject a little bit, but just to give you a little bit of what happened around here, where I lived and was brought up, right here. Here was probably the barn. Our house was just over by the gun pits, not probably more than 50 metres away. They were very close to where the gun pits were, so if you'd gone over there this morning, then you would have seen them. Now, contrary to belief, there was never a gun there. Never a gun there. We used to come home from school and we watched them being built. But, um, so there was never a gun there. But there were many guns around Auckland. And uh, I believe there was some out of Fenuapai. There was Belmont and Takapuna and different places anyway. So Teatida was quite an exciting place to be. There were army fellows around here. And uh, 
there was um, lots and lots of aeroplanes flying around all the time. There were searchlights gathered about. We saw them from Mount Eden, um, probably uh, Belmont, I think, um, Cary Point and Narrow Neck and searchlights in the sky and these planes would take off from um, Fenuapai of course and they'd go up into the sky and these searchlights would try and do their damn thing up there and try and catch them or see them. Now, in we used to go down to the end of Teatadu here, and you may not know this, but at the end of Teatadu was uh, a bombing range, and we used to go down there and watch the planes. I'd, I think they'd be Hudson bombers, would that be right? Yeah, they were Sunderland, as I remember as a kid at Point Chef Beach. You'd see them going on a Sunday afternoon doing their training up and down the harbour here, yeah. dropping smoke blows off. That's right, they, were, they would drop these smoke bombs. Yeah. We'd go down to the beach and watch the planes coming in and dropping these things. Now the markers for that, that bombing range is still in the tide. It's still there. But a lot of people would not want to know what they were. When the bombing had finished, we'd hop out here as kids and count the bombs coming down. And then when it was over, we'd go out. And on a couple of occasions, we brought these couple of them home. Well, my father went absolutely out of his tree. They were only smoke bombs. But we brought them home and uh, he took them off us Somewhere out here, he dug a hole and they were buried them. They're, they're there, gone by now, I don't know what it was. Anyway, my dad being, having the position that he was in with the power board and responsible for the power in this area, um, he had a lot to do with Whenuapai Air Base. So, as a little kid, I would go with my dad out to Whenuapai Air Base and spend a lot of time because it was his job that had the airbase been taken out, don't forget it wasn't too long after the war that there was a threat going on, Aussie had been hit, Darwin, um, there had been Japanese subs in the Sydney Harbour and the, we all knew the Japs were coming down um, and so if Whenuapai had been taken out then it was my father's job to get Whenuapai up and running for the power. That's a job you never thought anyone would have but that was his job. So he had a little office out there in one of the hangars. <coughs> I'd go out there with my dad, spend all day, and he would go over the plans and all the wiring and all the things that had to be done to get that base up and running, should it ever happen. Um, so I spent a lot of time out there. I'm only a little kid, but I had the run of the Air Force, so I thought one day I'm going to be a pilot. This has to be, that's, my, that's where I'm heading. I spent a lot of time, the fellow used to lift me into the aeroplane, put a hat on me and I'd pretend that I was flying these damn things. And I spent time on the, the dummy aircraft that were situated around the air, airfield, made out of, um, I don't know, whatever they made them out of, um, bits of wood and things, but they looked sort of like aircraft anyway, and so I'd sit in there and think I was going to fly around the world, and never did. So I was destined to join the Air Force. That's what I thought. Ha ha ha. So I went through, time grew up, and um, um, the CMT came along, and we did our thing, and then we went. Well, I went through what somebody here just called uh, the idiot test. I'd never heard of it called that, but my God, if you're right, whoever said it was you, was it? Said it was the idiot test, and uh, when I went into the recruiting office, they said... <laughs> What do you want to do in the Air Force? Because I put mine off. I wanted to go in the Air Force for sure. I was going to fly planes. And um, 
I said, well, I want to fly airplanes. And then very stupid, you can't fly airplanes, you've got brains. But um, we know that because you've just done the test. So anyway, they said, but we are forming um, a, a, a new organisation and it's called um, Light Anti-Aircraft. Well, says me, what the hell do you do there? Um, I'm not too fond of getting killed. It would mean something like that. And he said, well, you can either do that or you can be a cook or work in the library. Well, I didn't want to be a cook or work in the library, so I said, right, I'll join. So that's how I became involved with the light anti-aircraft. Now, our base was at Fanuapai. Uh, sorry, Hobsonville was the base. And uh, so we duly, uh, time went by and we were duly called up and in we went. We were all the same age. We were all 19 or 20. We all thought originally that we were going to fly aeroplanes, but that wasn't it. We were going to shoot down guns, we were going to shoot them down and fly them. Well, the day came along. We assembled at the bottom of Queen Street. Boys had come from all over, all over New Zealand, some very remote places, like Bluff and Stewart Island and all over, all over New Zealand. Nobody knew each other. Assembled at the bottom of Queen Street, trucks arrived, and uh, we jumped on. Now, in those days, it was a long way to go from the bottom of Queen Street to Fanuapai. Long way. It wasn't like the motorway was there. It was took a long while to get there, so off we trotted. Threw ourselves into the back of this truck, the trucks, and were taken out. Now, a very strange thing happened. We thought it was strange at the time. We arrived at Hobsonville. The first thing they did was took us through the gates. We all had our civic gear on our bag, and we were taken down to a place which you guys will know. It was, from memory, it was somewhere about where the hall is. There's a hall out there and we were taken out there and all told to line up in alphabetical order. This was strange, we thought. All lined up in alphabetical order and uh, in three ranks. Well, we didn't know each other. So um, they said, right, what's your name? What's Abbott? You must be up there. You're Smith, you must be over there. You're Wilson, you're down there. And so we did this. Now, there was 55 of us. That's how many there were, there were 55. I'll come back on that later. The, um, so we all lined up. Then he said it's formed three ranks, which we did. And um, first rank, two, step, steps, two steps forward, which we did. And I was in the second rank, one step forward. And then there's the back row. We didn't understand what was going on. We didn't know each other. Nobody did. And then the sergeant, or whatever he was, went along behind us and tapped certain men on the shoulder and said, all be silent. So we did, we stood there. And then he said, the rest, the ones I've tapped on the shoulder stay, the rest dismiss. So I wasn't a shoulder tapper, so I got out of it. Now, the idea of that was, and then he said, the men I've tapped on the shoulder will have their hair cut. Well, I was okay, I had a crew cut, so I was out. Now, this was very odd. But anyway, it happened, and all of a sudden we realised we're here to do it their way, not our way. We're going to have to take orders. So that was the first installation. Then we found our barracks and blah, blah, blah. Well, we spent um, the course, the, the, there was 55, 55 of us.
Um, I don't know. I was in what became known the fifth light anti-aircraft, and we operated. Well, first of all, we we operated. We did. The course was broken into 14 14 weeks initially. It was over three years, but initially it was 14 weeks. And um, the first six weeks we did rifle training, which was all good fun. Um, we went out hard more. We all had our own rifles, and another strange thing is we all had to memorise or know our rifle numbers. Now, you guys, I don't know if you Air Force fellas had anything to do with rifles or memorising your rifle. Did you have to do that? Did you? Yeah, well, we thought it was odd. Why would you want to memorise your rifle number? But it became very important later on, especially now because I can use that number on the, on the machine I get my money out. Nobody will know what it is. Anyway, the first six weeks were taken up with rifle training. Um, we shot Sten guns, we shot Bren guns, and the most amazing weapon, highly inaccurate, was the, the Piet gun. And we even tossed a few grenades. But um, that was all a blind because it was only tossing these dummy grenades over goalposts. That's all it was. So we were really the army in blue. That's all we were. Um, the six beats we did, we, it was good. We um, did all these unarmed combat stuff out at Hobsonville and generally had a hell of a good time. You know, we even had dances with you all the night and they brought girls out. So that was good. And then when the eighth, eighth week came up, we then got into the light anti-aircraft, the guns, the big stuff. Um, so it came about that they said, well, who wants to be, hang on, a, 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 an aircraft, a Bofors gun, they were Bofors guns, which incidentally were manufactured in Sweden, also used by, with 40mm Bofors, also used by the Germans during the Second World War. So Sweden had a little bit of an input on both sides and probably made money out of the war. Good on them. Anyway. Uh, we then got used to the Bofors guns, we had to maintain them, we had to do aircraft recognition and we'd go into a dark room and they'd flash on the screen um, or an aircraft flying through. Um, there was <laughs> all sorts of aircraft, but most of the bloody things were Heinkels or um, Focke-Wolfs or something like that. Well, that was all gone. And then we had a few Spitfires flown anyway. We'd recognise these aircraft at, um, at, at all different angles we're supposed to, and sometimes they'd just flip it on for a fraction of a second and we were supposed to be quick enough to be able to recognise it was and write it all down. So the training began on the big guns. We did um, had to do barrel changing and maintain these things and blah, blah, blah. And it was all good fun. And we spent a lot of time now out of camp. So this is probably why, although we were, our basic training was in Hobsonville, we went as units out of camp. We had our own tents, we had our own, we were completely set up as, as our own little unit, and we would go off where we were. Now the 55 boys was a selected 55 because six nines are 54 and one is a spare driver and he was the supply driver. So on each gun, there was uh, nine, 
there would be um, five on the gun, two on ammunition, one radio, and one driver. And that was the unit. So you had a, an airfield, and in theory we'd take it, and we did, we'd take a position not at the edges of the airfield, so there'd be two there, two in the middle, and two on the end. These are six guns around. They'd often be outside of the airfield, and like maybe a mile or two out. Um, it didn't matter where we went, we were largely often given our own choices to where we went when we went out on manoeuvres. So off we'd go. Some of the training was done, um, the live shoots were done out at um, Murawai, uh, which was a good place. So we did um, air to air, ground to air shooting, we did ground to sea shooting, and we did ground to ground shooting. Now, if you know a Bofors gun at all, like we were, they're not very accurate. You get one shot. There's that much recoil in the bloody things, the second shot's only just by chance. Well, we'd take the guns out to Mirawai, set them up, and um, with the tents, the whole lot of us would go out there, the whole show was set up, and uh, off we'd go. Now, we'd put in the markers, pegs they were, one over there and another peg over here, and in theory, um, a plane would come through towing the drogue and I don't know how far the drogue was behind the aircraft I don't remember but it was probably 500 to 1000 feet or something like that I don't know and then when the plane came across we'd get ready over that marker and uh, have the ammunition ready to be loaded and then when the marker when the drogue came over the plane was by now over there, so no show of hitting him. And uh, we would we get the order, commence firing. Bang, 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 off we go. They went off at around about, um, I think, 120 a minute or something. Um, a fair bit of re recoil in them. And we just follow this damn thing around, and off we'd go. And there was no chance of ever hitting the plane, and there was very little chance of ever hitting the drone. Yeah, very little chance. In fact, I think the u the um, the unit before us never hit a thing. But fortunately, our claim to fame, we hit. We were firing away, and bang, 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 and and it's quite good because you can see all the shots, see all the shots in the air, and all of a sudden, the bloody drove drifted down. <laughs> we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it. We'd fired thousands of bloody shots, and here it is, the bastards coming down. So, we said, hooray, great cheers. We'd like winning the finals of the Rugby Cup, you know. So, we dismounted from the gun, and we're all so grateful. We bolted across to get it, and we were going to rip it up into shreds and all turn home and sample, because all of a sudden we're famous. We'd got, we'd got one and got a, got a shot away. Well, we did that, grabbed the drogue, um, to find that it was all in one piece. We hadn't shot it down at all. <laughs> what we had hit was the wire. And as we're collecting this up and making our way back to the, to the tents um, and, the, and the headquarters and, the, and that, all that sort of thing, the plane came over in a victory circuit. He went round and he came round again, but he was still dragging the wire. And it came across the earth and we heard it coming and could see it and we just ducked. A couple of fellas dived under the trucks and we just 
did whatever you're supposed to do when you're getting away from bloody wire that's going through. Incidentally, we had waited for about an hour for that bloody harbour, I think it was, to actually show up because he was in trouble out here at Fanuapai and eventually got out there. But anyway, the wire came through and he sliced right through the back of the jeep that had the canvas cover where the radio operator was, right behind his back, cut right through it. Um, luckily, no one—he wasn't killed, and he was alright. He flew back to Fanuapai, I suppose, with the wire still down. He never retracted it. He never retracted it. But we got the drogue. Um, we were all under strict orders not to say anything about what had happened, um, because it could have been death. He went right through the camp, cut the jeep just about in half. Certainly cut the the canopy, and um, just about took the radio operator with him. But um, anyway, we went to many, many places. We went to, we went up north. I think the officers, who were a pretty good bunch, um, I don't know where they came from, whether they were drawn from the Air Force or some training school or something. Does any, somebody might know that more than I do. But they weren't a bunch, bad bunch of guys, the, the officers we had. And they were just about as casual as what we were. Um, I can recall going down to, um, we set off out of camp one day, we took everything with us, the guns and everything we had, all the equipment, and set off right down the island somewhere, and uh, we came to um, Tauranga, and uh, we went to Matamata, did a, a live air to shoot there, and um, we ended up at the mount. Um, we took all the trucks into the mount, and uh, the officers told us whether they would line up, stop there, so we stopped there. Now it happened to be outside of a pub. And he said to us, right oh fellas, I mean we're only 19, uh, 20, he said, right oh fellas, if you all behave yourself, I'm gonna, I've just been to see the manager and you can all go and have a beer. So we thought, this is pretty bloody good. So we're only, actually the, the, uh, the age limit for drinking, you might remember, was 21. And even though we're in uniform, we still weren't obliged to get on the turf, but we did. So anyway, they led us into the pub and we behaved ourselves and that was a bit of a bonus and then we took the hills with our guns and stayed up there for days and the cooks came up and gave us a feed and got a few more ground of air shoots and all that sort of stuff. We did ground to see uh, Wonga Praa. Um, I think there was some sort of a navy, navy barge or something came up there with a target towing behind it and it would come out of Auckland somewhere rather eventually would arrive up there. We set the guns up on the hill right on the cliff, right on the cliff and um, we'd commence firing out to sea and that was good because you could actually see your bullets or your, your shells going out and you could see the ricochet across the water so and I've actually got a photograph of that it was quite good quite good and exciting. So we spent time up there doing all that nonsense and uh, then there was ground to ground shoots which we did at Murawai, Sandhills, um, that was good, never got the truck stuck in the, in the ocean. Um, it was all, all good fun, I think, um, in the, then we came back for our summer camps, um, uh, so all the boys came back for the summer. We got new uniforms for their summer uniform. Off in the trucks we'd go. We never stayed in camp. Uh, maybe a few days at Hobsonville. We shot out and we'd do the same again. We'd go to all sorts of places. I rather think that 
probably the officers wanted to be nowhere near the camp anyway. And I think when I heard that, I did not know until I got in contact with this this forum that we were called the Forgotten Squadron. Um, that's a new name to me, and um, I'm still in contact with a, a large number of the boys that I was with at 55. Um, the 55 of our lot, there were other ones as well, but um, they didn't know it was called the Forgotten Squadron either, but it's not a bad name if you were never there, isn't it? <laughs> at any rate, um, time went on. In night, we did the summer camps, we went all over the place again, had a lot of fun, and uh, finally in 1957, I think it was, um, it was disbanded. I mean, the guns had got slower, aircraft had got faster, there was no show of catching anything that was up there by now. You know, it was hard enough to catch a bloody harbour, and you couldn't even shoot down a drone. So it was disbanded, and uh, that was the end of our lot in the in the CMT, so we never went in an aeroplane, never flew an aeroplane, all we did was do what I've just been telling you about, having a hell of a lot of fun. In 19, in 2014, as you know, the, the air base was closed down at Hobsonville, and um, I live at the moment, and have for a lot, a lot of time, lived in Fenuapai, and I look right on to the Hobsonville air base from where I live, near Harold Island. And uh, I noticed one day some cranes in the air of the barracks. So I shot over there with my camera and uh, took some photographs. And sadly, I was there and was able to witness them with the big grabs pulling down the barracks. And that era was closed, finished. The beer bottles and all the grog that we'd drunk and stacked in the, in the roof came down. <laughs> and also, um, <laughs> one of the lads who died last August, um, sadly we've lost three this year, uh, all 82, and I'm just coming up for that one, so they've gone, um, but one of the boys <laughs> stole the station commander's flag. Now this was not done, big, you know, <coughs> big Ardmore or something, uh, anyway. We knew he had done it. We were all lined up again, and, and uh, who, who had stolen the flag? Well, Alec from Gore, he just died in August, um, admitted to it. No, he, no, hang on, sorry, he, did, he never admitted No one knew admitted it to it. And I waited. He said he had stuffed it up in the ceiling. Well, I waited there two years ago to see this come out, but I never saw it come out at all. I never saw the flag come down. So what happened to the commander's flag? I'm bugger if I know. But anyway, the era was over. That was it. And I went home feeling very sad, and that's the end of it. <laughs> and I'd like to introduce Norm Sampson, who uh, has recently written a book called uh, A Deviation from the Norm, and he's, um, he's going to tell us a little bit about the, his days with the, um, the flying boats. Uh, that, uh, like the uh, Grumman flying boats and, and various things like that. Uh, thank you, Dave. Good afternoon, all. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Um, yeah, yes, as Dave said, uh, I'm Norm Sampson. I grew up in uh, Wangarei uh, without any uh, 
any notion of what I wanted to do in my uh, adult life. But um, by chance, uh, I found myself working on a, um, a coastal tugboat out of uh, Wangarei and uh, working up and down to Auckland and uh, tied up to Devonport Wharf. Uh, well, by this time, I had actually started some uh, private pilot training and uh, tied up at uh, Devonport Wharf one day. Um, I spotted the Grumman Widgeon taking off at uh, Mechanics Bay across the harbour and uh, I said to my skipper, I said, hey, that'll, do, that'll be me. I says, uh, I can just see myself doing that. And he said the best thing he probably could have said. He says, wouldn't stand a chance. He said, every pilot in New Zealand wants that job. So I said, okay, give me three years. And sure enough, after a few adventures, uh, three years later, there I was. But, um, yeah, growing up in Whangarei, uh, on my... Uh, for my 12th birthday, my dad shouted me a ride to, uh, to Auckland and back in uh, what was then a, um, a flight done by um, de Havilland Domini. We, uh, we landed at Whanuapai Airport, which you'd be familiar with. And uh, yeah, so... Um, NAC. Uh, it was NAC, yes. And uh, with my brownie box camera, spent, spent the day at the airport. No, there's no such thing as security. Just wandering around, you know, investigating the hangars and so on. So, um, that's the way it was those days. And uh, cause, uh, in 1973, I found myself uh, back at Fanuapai, driving the widgeon around the taxiways, being trained on uh, how to taxi the, uh, the amphibians. So, um, Oh, it was just uh, a magic experience flying the amphibians for as long as I did. Um, my son said to me once, uh, he said, Dad, he said, Fred Ladd was at uh, Mechanics Bay for 12 years and you were there for 17. He said, how come everybody knows Fred Ladd but nobody knows you? I said, well, it's a bit like Mount Everest. I said, everybody knows that uh, Edmund Hillary and uh, Tenzing were the first to climb that. But hundreds of people have climbed it since then. Who were they? Nobody knows. So. Um, and he flew under the Harbour Bridge. <laughs> well, <laughs> the Harbour Bridge. There's, a, there's a little secret in the in, 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 in the book there, Peter. <laughs> he flew under it twice. Oh, could well have done. Yeah. Probably more than twice. Yeah. His second his second time was as a passenger in my aircraft. Oh right. I got I got away with it because I had the director of civil aviation on board at the time. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's, um, it's a real shame that uh, we didn't have um, webcams back in those days because all those years flying the amphibians, it was just magic stuff and uh, opportunities lost really by, uh, by not having that uh, camera equipment. Uh, luckily we had a chap by the name of Mark Cranston, he's with us here today a recent member of your, your forum group, um, the consummate uh, aviation enthusiast, and he used to fly around with us, and uh, as a result of that, we've got a lot of valuable um, 
camera, or, you know, just fixed. Um, still, still photographs is the word, isn't it? Still photographs of, of our amphibians, uh, some of which um, have uh, helped to grace my book. Um, another thing that's not very well known about the amphibian, about the CB Air operation, is the years that we spent in the Pacific. We had uh, several contracts with the, uh, the Grumman amphibians um, in the Pacific, Tuvalu, Fiji, and uh, lots of adventures up there, one of which is um, exemplified here on the table, that uh, little copper canister there. Does anyone here, any of the old uh, Air Force guys happen to know what that might be? <laughs> Yes, I was um, based in Funafuti, uh, 500 miles or so north of uh, Fiji, for a couple of years with uh, an operation with the uh, with the amphibians, and uh, we had a, a diving team staying in the house next to us, and they came to see me one day and they said, "Hey Norm, we found a, um, a wrecked airplane in the lagoon. What sort is it?" No idea. Come and have a look and tell us what it is. And I said, well, I've never dived, never scuba dived in my life, but how deep is it? Oh, it's only 70 feet. <laughs> so, <laughs> next thing I'm out of the lagoon there, being thrown in the water. This is how you empty your mask. This is buddy breathing. Down we go. And I get to the, uh, down to the seabed, and, uh, and there's a Catalina flying boat from X number 5 squadron. And... Uh, it still had the machine guns in it. Um, the nose area was badly damaged, but uh, I found my way into the cockpit and uh, was able to remove the. Uh, this this boy might sound terrible to say, <laughs> the purists, but back in those days it was finders keepers. I got the, uh, the control column out of it, and uh, during this process I uh, managed to run out of air and get Buddy Breathe back to the surface and uh, put another tanker on and went back down to complete the mission and uh, I found a um, another one winged it I, I spotted a, an object was just like you know, the corner of that sticking out of the sandy bottom and uh, scratched around and, and, and rolled that out and uh, subsequently uh, found a second one off the other wingtip. So I put a rope around them and pulled them back up into the boat and uh, carefully hacksawed the, uh, the tops of them, carefully being so that I didn't damage it of course, and uh, found that it was full of some sort of uh, crystallized substance that I was unfamiliar with. I, uh, I took a, a small sample of safe distance away and uh, see if it, checked it to see if it had burned, but it wouldn't. I hit it with a hammer and it didn't uh, react, so I, uh, I left my uh, labourers to carry on carefully sticking the contents out while I kept the same distance away. Uh, the only thing that it had on the top that was um, other than what you see there is uh, it was a, a brass knob about two inches diameter with a, a shaft about like my finger going down into the centre of it. and. Uh, buried amongst this sort of uh, crystallized honey type of substance that we were digging out, there was a shell casing containing some uh, like clockwork 
material connected to the other end of the shaft. And uh, this shell casing had the words loaded 1942 stamped on it. This made me very suspicious. So um, I strove mightily to find the, uh, you know, what the origins of the thing might be, but uh, the answer came years later when I was parked with my grub and goose at Wangarei on a charter and uh, came back to the aircraft and found there was an old chap leaning over the fence uh, looking wistfully at my aircraft and he says, uh, oh I love amphibians, he said I used to fly Catalinas during the war. And uh, I said, uh, okay, you must have carried death charges with you. And uh, he said, oh yes, carried them all the time. I said, what do they look like? He said, oh, funny things. He said, they didn't look like real bombs at all. He said, sort of square canisters about this big. <laughs> I tell you, the hair stood up on the back of the neck and I was a visualised myself, 70 feet down, rolling these things over on the seabed. <laughs> Uh, there you are. At the moment they contain uh, books on the road, so you're welcome to <laughs> read all about the story at your leisure. Um, unfortunately, uh, amphibian flying and uh, it taught us ultimately, my mates, my partners and I were slow learners. Um, let's see, it was, it was about the airlines, I'm digressing a little bit here, but that's me. Um, yeah, when I started work at Mechanics Bay, it was uh, 1973, it was Mount Cook Airlines. And uh, three years after I started, um, Mount Cook Airlines decided that the company was losing so much money that they were just going to close the doors and that was going to be the end of uh, Auckland's amphibians. Well, it was myself and uh, a couple of other pilots and engineers uh, decided that we would um, try and keep the, the service alive, made Mount Cook Airlines a ridiculous offer, which they accepted. Before they closed down, we, um, well, my, my partner, who was uh, chief pilot at the time, contacted Mount, contacted the uh, the mobile fuel company and said, uh, I'd like another 20,000 litres, please, in the underground fuel tanks, which Mount Cook Airlines paid for. So uh, <laughs> when we took over, on a lack of a promise, we had plenty of fuel to keep us going and uh, we survived for another 15 years or so but uh, eventually the, um, we realised that uh, vintage aeroplanes, salt water and money don't all sort of mix well together and we were forced to close down ourselves so uh, I myself um, experimented in um, Firstly, with retirement, and found that I didn't really like that either. But now I'm having to have a second crack at it. Um, I tried a bit of ferrying. I uh, flew the Tasman two and a half times. I'll let you think about that. Um, I ferried an aircraft to Vanuatu, and uh, was supposed to be home the next day. But I made a fateful decision to uh, stay and uh, spend a week in, uh, in Port Vila. During that time I was offered a job ferrying another aircraft from uh, Kuala Lumpur. So uh, off I went to, Kuala, to KL and uh, on arrival back at Vanuatu I was offered uh, a permanent position up there. 
So, um, for, well, 40 years up here sounds good because I have a you know, family to bring up. Um, four years seemed like a good idea, but uh, life is what happens when you're making other plans. Uh, 25 years later, one night we were still home. And meanwhile, the children have grown up and uh, retired, or they've moved back to Auckland, and now that there's grandchildren growing up, it's sort of time for me to relocate myself back to New Zealand. So all in all, it's been a, uh, a fun career. 17 years out of Mechanics Bay, 15 years flying in Vanuatu, and the last uh, four years have been contract flying on ATR aircraft, India, back in Fiji, even flying back up to uh, Vanuatu, where I um, spent a couple of years, many years ago, to discover that I was remembered up there for uh, reasons other than uh, all the wonderful things that we've done, but uh, the secret to that is in the book. <laughs> and uh, yes, I finished off my career flying um, ATRs, uh, flying mining crews from uh, Cairns to Mount Hagen, in and out of uh, the highlands there, and uh, other destinations within PNG. A, uh, a heart operation two years ago curtailed my active flying career, but um, now it's a pleasure to be back amongst all my lovely Kiwis and uh, enjoying a lifestyle back in New Zealand again. So thank you very much, and uh, it's been a pleasure being at uh, this forum. Uh, the book is $38 a piece, I've sold about 400 so far, most people complain that um, just kept them awake for the first two or three nights. And, uh, yeah, all positive. Anybody got any questions? Sir? Is it colder in New Zealand than it is in Vanuatu? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, most of the time. But uh, I'm starting to acclimatise. <laughs> I want to know how you can eat a scargoes without throwing up. How many hours did you do in the, in the Grummans, in the, in the Widgeons, in the Goose? How many hours approximately? Uh, it'd be about 8,000 total in the um, amphibians. Uh, split, split between Widgeons and Gooses. Yeah, I, I, I retired uh, with 34 hours to go to reach 27,000. So my next mission is to find out how, to, how I'm going to make another 30 hours. Um, I've had a, I had a heart operation. Uh, just it, it was a, it sounds sounds horrendous, but it was only a heart valve repair, bit of a cut and tuck, and uh, I'm fully recovered, of course, as, as far as the doctors are concerned. So, I, they, they, they've told me that there's no reason why I shouldn't, but I, I haven't got a job to go back to as yet. But it's, it's still a few years left. Test flying? A mosquito. a mosquito. Count me in, mate. I'll get a license back just for that. <laughs> we had to afford to fly it. Did, did, um, did either the, the goose or the, the widgeon, did one suit the operation better than the other? Was one more preferred than the other that you flew? Uh, yeah, people often ask me uh, which I preferred. 
to fly. The answer was usually whichever one I haven't flown for the last few days. Because they both had their own idiosyncrasies, the, um, the, the goose was far more economical um, from the accountant's point of view. Um, as one bloke said, as fast as the goose earns money, the regions eat it up. And um, Mount Cook Airlines had identified that during what, the three years that I was with Mount Cook. And they um, decided that they were going to scrap one of the widgeons and replace it with a goose. Now the, uh, the widget that they scrapped had to be flown to Christchurch to have the engines taken off to put into the ski planes. And that happened to be my task to fly it down there. And uh, some of you may know of CHG, widget that sat at Christchurch Airport for many years, minus minus the, uh, the engines. Um, it's now back at Ardmore, because when we bought the operation from Mount Cook, we inherited all of the widgeon, all of the, all of the Grumman aircraft and, and spears, which included the, the Hulk in Christchurch. And it's now come back to Ardmore, and who knows, maybe somebody will restore it someday. And uh, the goose that uh, Mount Cook Airlines were intending to replace it with, uh, crashed on its delivery flight and that was sort of the last nail in the coffin for Mount Cook Airlines and largely I think why they ended up closing the doors and uh, to some degree it was you know, their loss, our gain because um, myself and the other guys took it over and carried on as, as CBA for another 15 years or so. What happened to the goose? What, what, Sorry? What was the accident with the goose? Uh, that one was, um, they had an engine failure, I believe, and um, because of an aft C of G with it full of fuel for its spirit flight, uh, they lost control of it and it just, um, in fact, when I arrived back from from my delivery, I was taking the widget to Christchurch for it to be scrapped, and uh, got back to Mechanics Bay and uh, they showed me a, a photographs of this um, wreckage in the paddock and that was that was the goose which um, I was supposedly going to go on. Mount Cook had said um, that I would only go on, you know, I would go on the goose three years after my uh, initiation when the, when the second one arrived and it didn't do that. So the only way I was going to fly a goose was to just hang in there and uh, participate in the, the takeover. Yeah. Again, sir. I'm going to get you while you're up here. You, you had the Grumman and Goose were fitted with different power plants, radio and so on. Was there any major difference in the performance of the aircraft between the, the different types of engines that were on there? Yeah, a very, very interesting uh, question. The two, the two standard Gooses that we had operating out of Mechanics Bay were um, fitted with the, the Pratt & Whitney R985 radials, the same engine as in the as in the Harvard, and um, that was the engine that the uh, aircraft were actually designed for. Um, and the airplanes also originally had a um, a design weight, gross weight, I think of about 9,000 pounds. And um, when they put the turbine engines on. Um, as a, a later modification, 
Um, that was the, the one that we bought for the Pacific Islands contract, was a, a turbine goose. And uh, because of the extra power, they had to move the engines closer inboard uh, so that it could fly asymmetrically. And um, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the propellers were only about you know, eight or nine inches apart uh, on the from the centre line uh, because they moved the engine so far inboard to uh, enable it to fly on one engine. Um, but it made it a real dog of an aeroplane to fly in really windy conditions on the water. You couldn't steer it. Uh, we, didn't, we never had water runners on our aircraft, whereas in, in Canada you, you might see photographs of Grumman Gooses with a water rudder. And the reason that they have a water rudder is so that they can manoeuvre into a docking situation with one engine shut down. We never had that issue. We could always just steer them with asymmetric power. But um, the, we found that the turbine goose, because of the um, alignment of the engines, uh, they were difficult to control in windy conditions. And uh, by putting more, more power on the windward side, the aeroplane just tended to go faster, not to, not to turn. So you would have to pull a little bit of reverse uh, on the, the engine on the leeward side. And when you pull reverse on the engine, it blows spray out in front of you, and the spray is ingested back into the other engine. So uh, it was quite easy to get the, uh, the, the turbine engine salted up. Um, in addition to this, they um, increased the all-up weight to 12,500 pounds. And all this, you know, this was on, an, on a, a hull and a wing that was designed for only about 9,000 pounds. So the only thing that made it fly was extra speed. And when you're on the water, it's a bad combination. So yes, interesting question, but that, that's the way it was. Uh, we found that we could handle far rougher conditions with the standard goose than we could with the, um, the higher powered turbine goose. Sir? On the early um, Woodgens, you had the Ranger engine though, didn't you? And then you re-engined them with Lycomans? Uh, well, that, that, was, that was before my time, but you're quite correct. The, uh, they originally came out with a Ranger engine. And um, you know, rule, rule of thumb, on a seaplane, you just need more power, and uh, they they did make a better aeroplane out of the widgeon by putting the uh, the Continental engines on it. Uh, I never flew the Ranger engine, but um, I can imagine that they would have had some interesting times. You know, um, certainly in the conditions that, that exist in the Harrogate Gulf, um, the uh, ne nearly all of the widgeons that are remaining in the world have been re-engined. It's very hard to find a, um, a Ranger engined uh, widget anywhere in the world. There's still a number of them are still flying, but all converted to higher, you know, high powered plants. The, um, uh, at one stage during the 1980s, the, uh, the Grumman Corporation delegates came to visit our operation at Mechanics Bay. Uh, they were looking at the idea of um, rebuilding um, widget amphibians for the, um, you know, just for the commercial market and uh, started off by um, 
asking all the existing uh, widget amphibian operators if they'd be interested in buying a new one if they could build one. And when they came to Mechanics Bay and saw what we were actually doing with them, they just shook their heads and said, mate, these, these aircraft were just never designed to operate in these sort of conditions. They were just you know, amazed at what we were able to, to do with, uh, in terms of rough water handling. Uh, but when you're operating scheduled services, um, you just <laughs> you just sort of keep going, do what you've got to do. Um, we had one uh, interesting uh, aspect out at Mechanics Bay on days like this. Uh, it's ironic that we should have a, a nor'easter today. It was the bane of our life was the nor'easters coming into Mechanics Bay there. And of course here I am <laughs> reenacting it mentally anyway. And what do we have? A nor'easter. But uh, we had an approval, uh, sort of a, a long-standing grandfather rights uh, permission from the Harbour Board to land between the wharves and on days like this. Um, it was just too rough. We could, sometimes we could take off in, uh, in conditions with the swells that came in from, you know, from the northeast. Uh, but we'd have to land back in between the wharves. Um, and there's no way in the world that the authorities would let us do that today. But we used to come into what was like an oversized swimming pool um, down past what was the Intercontinental Hotel um, up above downtown Auckland there, lined up with what was uh, uh, nicknamed the slot. Between the, the, the ships were you know, uh, in, in port and in, in tied up at the dock and we were able to come and land between them and finish our landing run before we actually got out into the rough water um, of the harbour itself and then start a long, a long taxi around the breakwater where the container wharf is. And, uh, you know, we'd always have to scrutinise the area from the air before to see that there were no boats, tugboats or whatever are liable to suddenly appear from unexpected places. And, uh, yeah, it was always very exciting landing there amongst the amongst the moored ships. Um, sorry. Did you ever get to fly at Mallard? No, unfortunately, I would love to have flown on Mallard, but it had already left uh, New Zealand long before I uh, became involved with the amphibians. All right. Anybody else? That's it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.